Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the Netflix series, Squid Game. As you may have noticed, I did not put out an episode last week. I was taking a little bit of a break um, for the holiday to kind of unplug and (laughs) um, relax a little bit and to to get caught up on, on some other stuff, but I wanted to start this week off with an episode about a show that I I finished a couple of weeks ago and honestly have not stopped thinking about ever since. Um, And because this is a fairly recent show, there isn't much written about it, particularly from like a media analysis or research, at least a peer-reviewed research perspective. But I did find a couple of articles that are really interesting and I also have like my own opinions and way that I applied like psychological concepts to the show, you know, which is what we do here. Um, So I thought I'd take this episode to kind of work through some the episodes, um, talk about the show. Uh, I will say heavy, heavy spoiler alert if you have not seen Squid Game. So maybe pause here (laughs) and go watch the show. Um, It did only come out in September of this year, so understandable if you were not able to watch it yet. and so, in short, the show is a, I guess you would call it a horror <laughs> show. It's like a thriller. Um, it is a South Korean drama that is um, streaming on Netflix. And it basically centers around this concept of money <laughs> um, and like how desperate people who are very poor will become um, to get money. And... Um, so let me just give like the the overall synopsis. So basically, we follow our main character Seong Gi Hoon, who we are introduced to in the first episode as being a kind of down on his luck guy, who lives with his mom, is divorced, um, ha- has a child with his ex-wife, and is not good at gambling, <laughs> and has a lot of gambling debts, um, and we see that he's, you know, for for a lack of better description, he's kind of like a bumbling, ditzy guy, and, you know, just can't make good decisions, can't kind of get his life together, um, and so he's our, our main character that we follow through the series, and he encounters, after um, losing more money at on a horse race that was supposed to go to buying his daughter a birthday present. Um, he encounters this gentleman at a train station who tells him, if you play this game, I'll give you $100,000 for every time you win, and you owe me $100,000 every time you lose. And of course, he immediately starts losing, and the guy tells him that you can exchange a slap to the face for the $100,000. So he he plays this game for a while until he's earned... 
I think like six hundred thousand dollars or something. Like he he earns quite a bit of money, and then he's given a card with a phone number and told to call this number if he wants to keep playing games to win money. Uh, and that kind of sets up where we'll be for the rest of the series, which is he takes up this offer to go to this arena to play games uh, with 455 other contestants, and he's the last contestant. He's number 456. Um, and it's all these people who are like really down on their luck. Um, they're all really, really poor, whether it's because, I mean, a lot of it is kind of set up as like they've made very bad decisions. Um, you know, whether it's like our main character who, who loses his money from gambling or um, his childhood best friend is also in the game. Uh, his name is Sang Woo, and he um, is actually wanted by the police for embezzling money from his company. So, like, you know, he's there for <laughs> crimes, but he owes, like, a, a very large amount of money to this company for making bad investments. Um, and then you have some characters who are there because maybe they do some criminal activity. Uh, one of the characters who we follow is a young woman whose parents, who's actually from North Korea and her parents are still in North Korea. And so she's trying to rent, raise this money to get them over the border. So it really does range from like, I guess what we call like evil to good <laughs> reasons for being in debt and being in the squid game. And in this first episode, we also learn that um, the games that they will be playing as part of the competition are childhood games. So the first game is Red Light, Green Light, which uh, I actually was inter I was surprised to see that because, you know, I've used to playing that. I played that as a child growing up in America. I wasn't aware that that was a more like universally played game which, you know, speaks to my limited <laughs> awareness. Um, but, you know, it's the game where when, when it's red light, you have to stop moving. When it's green light, you have to advance. And the goal is to make it to the person calling red light, green light by the end of the game. Um, and, and as we go through the series, all of these games are either based on actual childhood games or based on, like, concepts from childhood. And the final game is the squid game, which we... we have explained to us in the first episode was this very competitive type of game that children would play um, where you draw a court in the sand that looks like a squid. So the whole show is named off of this childhood game and, and they're working their way up to um, playing this game. So, and I will say um, for a content warning, if either for watching the show or for listening to the rest of the show, there is a lot of violence. Um, there's also uh, some episodes where characters are portrayed dying by suicide. Um, it, it's mostly violence, like there that 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 is in the the content of the show, and, and it's quite shocking. Um, which I think is is a benefit of the show that it. it it shows just how desperate people become that they would stick with this game for the the possibility of winning money, uh, even though it's not possible for everyone to leave. Um, but just just so you understand that as I go through this, I will be talking about people um, being murdered <laughs> essentially in like very gruesome ways. Um, and if you watch the show, like that's just, just 
that's just something to be aware of. Um, for those of you who have already seen the show, you know what I'm talking about and maybe feel a little desensitized to violence, which maybe we can talk about in a different episode, uh, violence in movies. Um, but anyway, so our 456 participants are all driven to this arena in the middle of the night. They're dressed in these matching tracksuits, um, which is really interesting that they're all given the same exact uniform because one of the, the purposes behind giving people uniforms, this is the reason we do it in things like the military or law enforcement, is that when you give people uniforms, you strip them of their individual identities. And we just become a team, right? Um, if we're all wearing the same clothes, we're all on the same page, um, you know, I am no different than you. And it's interesting that they have them in uniforms because the, the purpose of the games is not to work together. It is to be the last remaining person in the game. Um, but they are stripped of their individual identities in, and, and they are not referred to by name. They are given numbers. So our main character is referred to as number 456 for the duration of the games. So as everyone is gathering in their clothes, in their tracksuits, um, then we see the sort of wardens of the game, which are these people dressed in these like bright pink jumpsuits with um, masks that cover their whole face that either have a circle, a square, or a triangle on them, and it's it's different levels of guards, and the pink suited guys, um, which is is really quite. Um, off-putting because it's like they're wearing this very bright, very colorful clothing, um, and a lot of the, the scenes in the show are very bright, like the sets where the games are played are, are very childlike, but all this like horrible violence is happening in the context of these, um, you know, very childlike, nostalgic, joyful-looking scenes, um, so it, it really creates quite a dichotomy throughout the um, show. But all that to say, the, the pink-suited guys show up, the, the one in charge reads the rules to the participants, and there are three rules in the Squid Game. The first rule is that a player is not allowed to voluntarily quit the game. So one person cannot just quit and drop out of the game. You have to stay in the game. The second clause is that any player who refuses to play will be eliminated. And it is very important to understand that at this point, it is not made clear to the participants that when they say a player who refuses to play will be eliminated, they mean uh, will be killed. And that, and in fact, any player who loses a game will be killed. Um, and this is not known at the time of the participants agreeing to the rules, which is important later for one of the articles I have to talk about. Um, but they are not told up front that elimination actually means death. Uh, and the third rule is that the games may be terminated upon a majority vote. So as long as 51% of the remaining participants vote to quit the game, the game will be stopped. But that means everybody goes home, right? So one person isn't allowed to just quit. And if the games are to be terminated, then everyone gives up or forfeits their chance to win the prize money. And after the first game where they learn in the moment that losing the game results in death, uh, after this game, the participants are told that the prize money accounts for about 10 million won, which is the South Korean currency, um, 10 million won for each deceased participant. So extrapolating that out to 
uh, 456 people, or 455 people, then you get your 10 million for you being alive, um, you get, the the total grand prize would be 45.6 billion won. So it's a lot of money. Um, but the point, the thing is, is that at the end of every game, there's this huge piggy bank in the, suspended from the ceiling of where they sleep, and it fills up with money at the end of each round, and you come to understand that as you're watching the money pouring in, it is directly correlated to uh, the amount of people that just died in the game you just part- participated in, um, which is really, really dark. Um, so so that's, the first episode spends a lot of time setting all of this up, and, and it's really contrasting the, sort of the sterile, um, like, rule-abiding environment that the games are taking place in and the kind of, like, chaotic, crumbling environment that our participants are coming from, right, who... Um, you know, are coming from, particularly our main character, are coming from backgrounds of, of poverty and of, you know, struggling to make it. Um, and then they also play the first game. So the second episode, after the second, in the second episode, the ga- the, the participants decide to do the vote to quit. Um, and they, they do get a majority vote. It comes down to one person. Um, he votes to go home everybody is sent home and we see that they immediately go back to their horrible situations. And by now we have, we've been introduced to several other characters. So we kind of get to follow them around. We see the young woman, um, who, uh, is from North Korea. We see her visiting her brother in an orphanage and she has, he has to live there because she's unable to take care of him as she works on, you know, helping her parents to defect. Um, there's also a, a young man who is a Pakistani immigrant, um, who's there. I, I, it's kind of insinuated that he's there, um, un, like, undocumented. And while I'm not familiar with how, like, immigration or migration works within South Korea, it is very clear from the dynamics in the show that he is not seen as an equal to the other South Korean, like, native-born or, or, like, citizen participants. Um, and so as we follow him around in the outside world, we realize that he works for a some sort of, like, machinery shop. I <laughs> I don't know. Obviously, I paid really well attention to the show. Um, he works for some sort of machinery shop where he, it's, it's, we're later revealed that he, he actually has lost several, f- a, a finger on his hand, uh, due to an injury from this type of work, and his boss has been withholding his wages, um, and he goes back to confront his boss, demand his wages, ends up maiming the man in a fight, and we see him come home to his his young wife and their baby, and he tells her to flee, that he's going to go win back this money, um, and, you know, bring her, bring her back money to, to their hometown, their, their homeland, they're going to flee back. Um, so, you know, just like, desperate, desperate people. The second episode is, is actually really painful to, um, uh get through because it it really is just these like very sad stories and you're just watching um everyone kind of struggle in their real life and and struggle even more with this knowledge that they could have had like billions of dollars to get out of their situations if they had stuck with the game um and they are offered the opportunity to come back to the game at any time and all of the characters that we end up following throughout the series make the decision to come back um, and to re-enter the games, and you're 
you're shown that their situations are so bad and they're so desperate that it would be better to take a chance on winning this much money or dying in this game without having to go back to this very desperate life they live. Um, and we also um, see that the old man character, player number one, um, it make, reconnects with our main character, 456, who, uh, and they, they kind of have this conversation about like, well, I'm going to go back because there's nothing for me. And, and later at the end of the series, we realize who the old man really is. Um, and so reflecting back on this episode, this is truly a very manipulative scene and a, a manipulative uh, way to get uh, Ji-hoon back into the game. Um, and, you know, since I'm already spoiling everything, essentially we learn by the end of the episode of the series that this old man, player one, uh, orchestrated the games. He's one of the like founding rich people because uh, we find out that the games are run by this like panel of obscenely wealthy men. Um, he's one of them, and he, because he is dying, he has a, a a brain condition or brain tumor. Because he is dying, he wishes to participate in the games himself for the last um, round to to see what it's like, and he actually. Although we were led to believe he's killed in the games, he's not. He's kind of ferried away, and we later find that he's still alive and, and is confronted by our main character. But all of that to say <laughs> that the second episode is really, really rough, especially when you realize that like um, a lot of these people would have lived to the end of the series if they had not gone back to the game. That's like this. It's this one choice in this one episode that that ultimately will lead to their death. So then we get to the third episode where we have actually begun to follow a, a, a character from the outside who was a police officer whose brother had gone missing and he had found the card with the symbol of the skid game, squid game in his brother's possessions. And so he follows the participants back to the game arena and he kind of infiltrates. So while we're following our main characters in the games, we're also following this police officer as he tries to investigate what's going on um, within the games. And uh, we get to the second game, which is something called uh, Pogi? Popoji, <laughs> uh, But basically it's a, it's a game where they're given like this melted... Um, honey sh sugar candy like a hard candy and there's a, a shape stamped into it and you have to carve it out with you're given a needle to carve out the shape um and some of the shapes are like a circle <laughs> and then some of the shapes are like an umbrella <laughs> um and with this game it, it double establishes that our our main character jihoon is going to always slide in at the last minute for a lot of these games. So in the first game, he was one of the last people to cross the line from red light, green light, and he actually almost dies except for the Pakistani man saving his life. Um, Ali, Ali like grabs him so that he doesn't fall and isn't seen as moving during the red light portion. Um, and again, in this honeycomb game, he gets his shape out of the honeycomb at the very like last second um, because he had the umbrella shape and he ended up having to like lick the the candy to dissolve it and it takes much longer than participants who had different shapes um, um, this this episode is also where 
it begins to take on a much darker tone because now you know the conceit of the game that if the people are not able to get their shape out of the candy that they will die um, and they're all pretty much all killed by gunshot by the pink jumpsuit like guards who who are walking around um, so it it adds a lot more stakes to these games than if you were just watching you know somebody a, a group of people playing these like old childhood games so that's our, our our second game is the the honeycomb game uh then moving into episode four and i'm skipping over a lot 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 so you know if you do feel like this is something you're interested in watching i do encourage you to watch it um all the way through um in the fourth episode we realize that there is a player who is helping the pink guys to harvest organs from the dead players so the players who uh are eliminated in the games some of them are um it's actually quite distressing they are uh kind of carried away before they fully die so that their organs are the freshest i know it's so bad um and then this doctor will help them harvest the organs so they can sell them and in exchange he gets to know the game um and so there becomes this tension within the players where these clicks are starting to form and the doctor is helping one click whereas um the other clicks start to realize that that he knows something that this group is more well prepared for games than they are um but nobody really knows quite why and so the next game that they play is um is tug of war um but but before they play the game a situation is set up where a uh, player is permitted to keep a glass bottle um, and the area where they sleep, where everybody sleeps in this like big open room with the piggy bank above them. He is permitted to keep a glass bottle, and he fashions it into a weapon and kind of and and this character is a um, he's some sort of like criminal <laughs> criminal <laughs> but he's like a uh my uh, mafia guy like a whatever the the south korean version of the mafia is so like you know he's portrayed as like he's a bad guy he's gonna do whatever it takes to win this money um and so he and his his group which are functioning essentially as a gang decide that when the lights go out they're going to try to kill as many of the other players as they can as possible to eliminate competition um because there are because there's only three rules and not one of those rules is you can't kill the other players basically it becomes realized that if you whatever you can do to eliminate more competition will make your uh your time getting to the top easier because there's less people to compete with in the games so they come they 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 attack in the middle of the night um it's it's like it's this is another really traumatizing part um, where people are, are being murdered um, quite horrifically and um, you know the weak obviously they're trying to pick off like the weaker people and so it is um, it, it's also very like emotionally fraught um, as you're watching people who are like very vulnerable being attacked by people who are much stronger than them um, and this is allowed to and and it's it's shown that this was allowed to take place by the people running the games um that this was some sort of sanctioned and once enough people have been eliminated this way uh then they step in and turn the lights on uh and and make everyone separate so from then on this 
sleeping area is no longer a place of safe haven or rest because the assumption is that at any night um, we can be attacked again because they've realized that this is successful and they won't they won't be stopped by the the game masters so you know not only are they going through the game and the games are getting more fraught and more and more people are dying but now um, they're getting less food that's also established in several of the episodes. They're given less food so that tempers will be high. Uh, and now they're not able to get sleep because many of them are staying awake all night to keep an eye on, you know, the other people to ensure they're not attacked. So, and, and I bring this up because throughout the movie or the series, um, this idea of like fairness is brought up. And in fact, the doctor that I mentioned before who was harvesting the organs, he is... Um, found out by the front man who is kind of like the the head masked man he's kind of running the game it's found out that he was sharing secrets with the other players and he is uh, basically strung up killed and strung up as an example to the other players and the message from the front man is that everyone here is supposed to be equal it's supposed to be fair and this was someone who cheated, who tried to take an unfair advantage over you. But And so this idea of fairness, of like, the games are fair, uh, anytime somebody complains about their situation, the response from the guards is like, you knew what you were getting into, um, and, and that this is fair. This is fair, you knew what you were getting into. That's like pushed on you over and over and over again. But the reality is, is that it is not fair, <laughs> right? Like, and that they did not know what they were getting into because no one was told that they would die. And the fact that they all came back to participate in the games again is, is frequently used against them when they are asking for like food or, or safety. Um, and, and I thought that was so interesting that it's like this very blanketed um, morality is applied to everyone of like everyone must be equal um, you know on the front we're saying that everyone must have the same chance to win but the reality is is that the way the games are set up is that there are certain people who, who could not possibly win and these allowances are given for certain people to have weapons certain people are not fed or you know they're not given food they're not given enough water or sleep um, and so it's like it immediately becomes unfair if you're playing a game and you're not um, at your like best conditions um, and so you, we, we see this like throughout the series this like hypocrisy of the people in power that they say one thing and you know, also not lost the symbolism of, of them wearing masks. Um, the masks are practical because their identities are not known by the players so that no one can, you know, report this as a crime that's been done to them after they win. Um, so, so it is practical, but it's also this, this symbolism of like this mask of, I guess, equality because all the, the masks are, are very similar and, and remove all of these like identifying features. Um, but this, this idea of like, we're presenting this mask of like, this is a very clinical, like scientific process where you follow the rules and you get the outcome you want. But the reality is, is that it, it's not, it's, it's a very messy, um, process and like humanity messes it up. Um, and that, you know, inherently putting people in this situation is a punishment. 
Um, but that long <laughs> tangent aside to just say that this theme of fairness is continued to be pushed upon the players, uh, and as the audience, we see that, that that's not true. Um, so after this riot, um, the food, or not the food, the money increases and they prepare for the next game, um, which is tug of war, but over the suspended platform. So the team that loses is pulled off of the platform and falls to their death. Um, and so because one of the teams knew beforehand what the game would be, it's this all male, they, they select an all male team of the strongest people. And this is the, the team of the, the criminal, the mafia guy. And then our main guy, Ji Hoon and his team has several women, they have three women and an old man on the team. And so it's kind of almost immediately assumed that, that they're going to die in this game. Um, and I, when I was watching it for the first time, I was like, this is impossible. Like, obviously there's so many of our main characters on this one team that they can't all die in one, like, what would the rest of the series be? And I had looked ahead and knew there were more episodes. <laughs> so I was like, and they can't possibly kill them all off right now. But it does get pretty intense where you, um, you kind of start to think that maybe this show as, as kind of messed up as it is, will kill off all of the main characters in, in one fell swoop. Um, so this carries over into the fifth episode where we find out that our main team survives because they use a, uh, very strategic approach where they kind of use physics and motivation, to defeat the other team, and so they move on to the next game. Um, and they, this is where we see that they've, this night is where we see that they've been so impacted by this riot, and they have built this barricade, and they take turns taking watch because they're so afraid that they will be attacked. Um, this episode also uh, kind of veers back to the cop that's been infiltrating the facility. And so we spend some time kind of following him around and seeing what he's learned. And he um, finds out that his brother, who he had been searching for, had actually won the game several years ago. Um, and that this game has been going on for like about 30 years. So he He's trying to like collect all this evidence that uh, to take back to the mainland because this is all happening out on this like abandoned island in the sea. Um, he's trying to take back this evidence to kind of prove like that this thing is happening, um, and that and you know how many countless people have died because of this game if it's been running for this long, um, and because he has been infiltrating as a guard, he has seen how many people are dying, that people are dying, that they are murdering participants um, as part of the game. So the fifth episode, we don't really have much of a game. Uh, we just have the follow-up of the tug of war. So in the sixth episode, um, they play a marble game. And so and this one was really difficult for me to get through because um, they tell the participants to pair up. So, you know, they try to make pairs of like people that they they think they'll work the best with or that would help them win, but then they realize that they're actually going to be playing marbles against each other, and whoever um, collects all of the marble, like, who at the end has all of the marbles, um, the other person, they win and the other person will be killed. So rather than working together, um, 
you are competing against the person that you picked. And, and so this one was like absolutely devastating because so many of these people had picked a participants or, or partners who were maybe their trusted friend or like there's one, it's a husband and wife couple, um, you know, that are sticking together. And then, you know, there's no, you don't get to switch partners at the end. There's no recourse for if you picked someone that you didn't want to kill <laughs> essentially. Um, and there are several like storylines in this one, but basically we realized that Sang Woo, the childhood friend of Ji Hoon, our main character, is like an absolutely complete psychopath. Um, and he realizes that he has lost um, and creates a scheme where he switches bags with his partner, who he had partnered with Ali, the Pakistani man. He switches bags and, and gives Ali a bag of, filled with rocks. Um, and convinces him that he needs to like walk around and look for somebody in the remaining time and then when the time is up he presents his bag which now has all the marbles in it even though they belong to Ali um, and allows the guards to kill Ali um, so that he can he can live and move on to the next round and so we we realized that um, up until now Sangwoo and Jihoon had kind of been the de facto co-leaders of this like ragtag group of kind of like the weakest, most vulnerable people, or like the, the outcasts, um, and it seemed that they had been working together and wanting to protect everyone, and we realized that Jihoon's um, motivations are pure for the most part. He does want to he doesn't want anybody to die, and Sangwoo wants to kill as many people as he can so that he can win. He's just being more strategic about it than the mafia guy, right? He's not going to go run around and kill everyone in the middle of the night, um, but he will scheme and make choices that will lead to the death of other people. Also, during the marble game, we follow Gi-hoon, who is paired with the old man, player number one, um, and we see him, the old man, having difficulty cognitively, and it's assumed that he, is, he has dementia or that it's his brain tumor that is impacting him, and so Ji-hoon makes the decision to use his confusion to manipulate him to win um, all of the marbles back. And we realized right at the last second that the old man was in fact not confused, had been aware the whole time, and although he he gives his marble to Ji-hoon so that he wins, um, he makes it very clear that, that like, um, you know, he sees that Ji-hoon has been kind of sucked into this, this, um, like, very competitive, almost, like, primitive way of, of, um, playing the game. Um, and so this was where, um, we, so we don't actually see him be, we don't see the old man be shot, uh, and that comes into play later when we realize that he, um, is the creator of the game and, you know, was never going to be killed. Um, but at the time we don't know that. And so we kind of think that, you know, Jihoon did this. He, he, he killed this man. Um, and then the, the woman, the North Korean woman had been paired with another woman, um, this very sort of odd, <laughs> uh, young woman. And they, they end up having this very emotional conversation. And then the young woman, um, gives her marbles to the North Korean woman 
basically saying like you have a better reason to live like you have people to look out for and I've had such a crappy um like really a very traumatized life and and she says you just you basically you deserve to live and makes the choice for the North Korean woman that, that she will give her all her marbles um and is killed and so between that and the old man and Ali this episode is probably the hardest episode to get through and it's really so emotional and you realize that you know it's, it's although it's only been a few episodes and we realize it's only been a you know really a few days in in the series um the people make very intense connections to each other i mean we as the audience make connections to the characters but also the characters have made these very intense connections with each each other through this like very intense trauma that they're going through um and that although logically the death of anyone in the game brings you that much closer to winning um they still mourn and have difficulty making the decision um and it's almost like their survival fighting against you know their empathy or compassion except for sang woo who is just again a psychopath and has absolutely no qualms about throwing ali under the bus so that he can continue on in the game um but I think I have made myself clear how I feel about <laughs> this character. Um, so after the Marble game, we move to the next episode, number seven. And this is where we realize that it's not just the man in the black mask, the, the front man that's running the game. It's that there are people above him, these very, very wealthy men who wear gold masks, and they are... Um, responsible for the creation and running of the game and that they actually place bets on who they think will win and have been running these bets uh throughout the game and you know the irony is not lost that the reason Jihoon is here is because of gambling debts and then here are these men gambling on his life and, and on lives of other people who are in debt maybe even for gambling um and, and that that is no great financial risk to the masked men to gamble on human life. Um, and they are indulging in, like, every delicacy possible. They're, like, drinking and eating the fanciest foods. And one of the um, masked men is, like, it's, it's clear that he sexually takes advantage of the servants um, every time. Um, and the game that they are watching in this episode is this really tense game where there are these, like, glass panels like these dual rows of glass panels running across this elevated platform and for each pair of glass panels one is breakable and one is unbreakable glass and so the order in which you picked your number to go across this bridge is the is like the order in which you'll go across and so of course the people at the front of the line are going to die the fastest because they don't know what's coming um and once again our our main guy jihoon is He's the last character. And so for all of these episodes, we've seen him kind of, he, he, he's always last. He always comes in last. Um, and this time he is last, he ends up with the last number, but it's to his benefit. Um, which I think there's, there's a little bit of a, uh, something to say there about like not having to be first <laughs> all the time. Um, and it, although for him, it's not necessarily always strategic. It is, it is to his benefit. Um, so they, they run across these panels. There's a lot of very tense moments, which again, if you watch it, you know, just be aware that, that it is pretty graphic when people fall 
off the panels. Um, and so the final three to make it out of the game are Sang-woo, Ji-hoon, and Se-byuk, the North Korean woman. And Sang-woo makes it because the man in front of him is hesitating, they're running out of time, so he pushes uh, the man in front of him as there's only one panel left to figure out which one is the, the fake panel or the breakable panel. Um, and so it's it's kind of very publicly revealed to Ji-hoon and the other woman that uh, Sang-woo will do anything to win. Um, and and Ji-hoon this whole time has had this idea of Sang-woo as like kind of this hero. He came from their neighborhood and became very successful. It's kind of like I knew him when. Um, he's very proud of his accomplishments and tells everyone like, oh, I know this guy and he's so smart. He's so successful. Um, but he's starting to kind of see that um, maybe Sang-woo isn't as isn't all that he's cracked out to be, and in fact, the fact that he's in the game <laughs> means that he, he, he made some bad choices. And so him seeing Sang-woo push someone to their death just to win a game kind of cinches the the deal where he, he realizes like, like Sang-woo was not the man that he thought he was, and just because he got into a good school doesn't mean he's a good person. Um, and the end of the game all of these panels, like, they explode and all this glass flies out. And as we go into the next episode, episode 8, we realize that the North Korean woman has been hit with a chunk of glass and she's bleeding quite badly. Um, and the, the this is, like, an actually a short episode. It's quite interesting. Like, this one was, like, a 20-minute episode um, that I, I think was probably just too long to tack on to either 7 or 9. Um... Because it's all focused basically on this one setting where they're, the three characters are now in, they're back in the room where the players would sleep. They're allowed to wear tuxedos. And it's interesting because they have the woman wearing a tuxedo, um, which, you know, it's kind of like, even though they're allowed to wear fancy clothes, they're still stripped of their identities, right? Because they, they all wear the same like masculine presenting clothes. And when I was watching it, I thought it was also kind of this assumption that a woman couldn't win the game um, because all throughout the games over and over and over again this idea of like women are too weak to win any of the strength games or women aren't fast enough to win the running games and that a lot of the women get eliminated very quickly and so the fact I, I saw it almost as like the fact that they don't have formal female clothing for her to wear uh, kind of suggest that the the creators of the game don't believe that a woman would ever make it this far to this like fancy dinner um, before the final game. So she's bleeding out during this game during this meal. Um, Ji Hoon and Sang Woo notice, and Ji Hoon then they then they go to go to bed. And they're still wearing the tuxedos. I thought this was so weird. The the, the rest of the series or the rest of the game they play in tuxedos. Um, the uh, Ji-hoon goes over to the woman because he, he's noticed that she's not doing well and they're having a conversation and basically she asks him like if you win you know use some of the money to help my brother because he's in the orphanage and he's like no I can't make the promise because you're not going to die and he realizes that um, they must kill Sang-woo he, he, he's like I'm going to kill Sang-woo so that you and I can win and I'm gonna let I'm gonna tell them that we're gonna go out together, 
and she's like, okay, <laughs> like she, you know, she's dying, she's dying, she's bleeding out. Um, and so as he goes to move to kill Sing Woo, she stops him and she's like, this isn't you. And so he goes to call for help instead of killing Sang Woo, and as he has gone to go bang on the door, Sang Woo sneaks behind him and, and kills her. Um, and Ji Hoon doesn't realize that until the guards come in and he's, he, the lights turn on and he sees Sang Woo standing over her body. Um, and so he flies into a rage and goes to attack her, or to attack Sang Woo, but the guards won't let him because if he kills Sang Woo, then the game is over and the, you know, masked men don't get their, um, you know, their, their entertainment. Um, and so then, then we move into the, the last episode, episode nine, where they finally play Squid Game. Um, and Ji Hoon and, and Sang Woo play, are, are playing the Squid Game and it's a very intense battle, um, it starts like pouring rain. They're like wrestling, and they're in tuxedos still. They're still in tuxedos. Um, and Sang Woo, basically, Ji Hoon like wrestles him to the ground and is about to win and could um, kill him. And Ji Hoon says no, like walks away and says he won't kill him. And uh, Sang Woo like basically grabs. Um, I don't remember what it was. But there's some sort of. Oh, they both had knives. They both still had steak knives from the the night before. He Sangwoo grabs his steak knife and cuts his own throat, essentially sacrificing himself so that Ji Hoon will win. And before doing that, tells Ji Hoon, "Take care of my mother." Um, so Ji Hoon wins, even though at the very end he he himself could not get over. He he could not push himself to kill somebody else. Um, and so the the rest of the final episode, I, I won't go through in detail, but basically, Ji Hoon he wins. Um, he 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 doesn't handle it well. He kind of f- falls into despair, and then eventually is called to meet with the old man, um, who he thought was a player, and realizes that the old man was one of the architects of the games, um, and is able to confront him before he dies. Um, and then the very last moment of the episode kind of sets it up for season two, which I was like a little disappointed in because this felt like something that was so perfect as one series, like one season. Um, and they they're they're setting it up for him. He's gonna go back to the games to kind of get seek his revenge. Um, but yeah, so that's the that's the series. So I wanted to talk about a couple of of, of issues that that I thought were really important that I, that are actually. I think do matter psychologically, even though they come from, both of these articles come from uh, philosophy writers. So this first one is from Corey Horn, um, and it's in the, it's on andphilosophy.com. It's a, it's a blog post, but, but I, I thought it was interesting what he was writing about. And he is actually writing about um, the ability to consent to play the, the squid game. So he asks, can they, or sorry, not he, they, they asks, can they consent to play the squid game. And they outline these um, four kind of pillars of consent. So what are the four conditions of consent? One, the person consenting must be competent. Um, and uh, before I get into these, the reason I bring this up is because consent is really, really important in psychology, <laughs> whether it's in research or in clinical work. So in research, Participants cannot participate in research unless they have informed consent. And consent to participating in the research 
while having full knowledge of all the risks that could befall them when they participate. And the reason we have so much strict <laughs> informed consent rules about research is because a lot of the research done in like the 50s, 60s, 70s um, did more damage to people than it did contribute to knowledge. Things like Stanley Milgram's experiments, the Stanford Prison Experiment, um, lots of other <laughs> experiments during that time. Um, participants did not know what risk they were getting into and untold risk was being done to them. So a condition of being able to do research now in this country is get having an institutional review board or a research board approve your research and by telling them here are all the risks that participants may experience in this in this study and creating materials that educate the participants on what those risks are before they even participate in any part of the study. So that's why it's important in research. Consent is also important in treatment because if you're if you're on the clinical side, like we don't want to give treatment to people who do not understand or know why they're getting the treatment. So when you go into see a therapist, one of the first things they're going to tell you is like, um, I keep everything confidential except for these several occasions, right? So there are several times where a therapist does have to tell somebody what was said to them in session. This occurs if the person is suicidal and if they're an imminent threat to themselves, then they may need to be hospitalized, which re results in the clinician having to tell the hospital that you are there for suicidality. Um, you also have to disclose if somebody in a session tells you that they have a specific plan to hurt a specific person, you have a duty to, or us as the clinicians have the duty to warn that person and warn um, like appropriate authority sources that, that this plan is in place. Uh, so that's a disclosure of, of confidentiality. And then if any of our mandated reporting things, such as child abuse, neglect, elder abuse or neglect, or dependent adult abuse or neglect, is told in session, whether it's the patient engaging in those, being the victim of those, or knowing somebody who is a victim or has engaged in it, uh, we have to tell somebody that we heard that. So consent, the, the part of consent, consent and treatment is knowing that Although pretty much everything you tell me is confidential, there are a few times where it's not. And you need to know that if you tell me something that falls in these categories, there may be consequences for it outside of your control because now you've triggered a mandated report. Um, and we don't want you to start engaging in treatment if you don't know that saying certain things will trigger certain consequences because you don't have full understanding of what those consequences are and we don't want to betray people's trust or impact their treatment because we didn't tell them what was going on. So that's why I think focusing on informed consent in the context of Squid Game is is, is really important psychologically because it relates to research and, and treatment. So in the Horn uh, post, informed consent has four conditions. So the agent must be competent, which means that um, you the, the, the person has to understand what's being said to them. So whether they're reading it on a form, they have to be able to read in the language, they have to be able to read and read in the language the form is in. Or if it's being communicated to them, they have to, it has to be communicated to them in a level of language in which they understand. And they have to not have such a severe mental illness that it um, reduces their competency. And so since I work in corrections, um, competency to stand trial, this is where this comes in. Like if the person is so mentally ill or experiencing mental illnesses to the point where they don't understand 
what they've been charged with or why they're in court, then they're not found, they're not competent to be tried for that crime. Same for consent. You have to be competent um, to understand what you're consenting to. Um, so number two, consent must be given voluntarily. Um, and while this may seem true in Squid Game that, you know, they came back after the the vote, you know, they came back the second time, um, it, it's really not true. And it's not true because there is an element of coercion in their consent. So everybody is in debt. Um, everybody is in, 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 not just in debt, but in such grave debt that they have considered, like, selling organs or, you know, doing doing very desperate things to get out of their debt. So the reality is, is that it's not voluntary because the amount of money that they would be given is so overwhelming and holds so much power over their lives that that it becomes difficult for them to make the decision to consent. And this actually is, is something that comes up in in research a lot or in conducting research that, that I've experienced is that um, when deciding if you're going to compensate participants in your research for their for their time in participating and if you've ever participated in a survey where you maybe entered into a raffle to win a gift card or if you use those like I know Google does it or like SurveyMonkey you can sign up for the app and just like take random surveys and they put like 10 cents in your account or they they put 10 cents on a gift card and you can build up to you know ten dollars over time um you know the, that that's compensation for the the time that you spent um completing the survey if that incentive or reward or compensation or whatever you want to call it if that becomes too big for the the amount of time or work they're doing um, it becomes a problem consent wise so an example that that I have been told before in like research methods classes is like if you're ever doing research with populations like uh, maybe mothers or single parents um, if you're offering things like baby formula as an incentive, uh, that becomes coercive because baby formula is extremely expensive. And so the uh, consequences of you offering that as an incentive is like people may sign up and participate in a survey and stay or a research study and stay in the study even if they experience distress because the potential reward of getting the formula is... Um, means so much to their lives, right? Like can, can can change their lives in a significant way. And so they will be more likely to stick with something that is causing them distress or pain because of this potential consequence. And that's literally what's happening in Squid Game, right? Like people are willing to be killed because of the amount of money um, that, that is being offered and because they see it as the only way to get out of their debts. Their debts are so overwhelming. So that's the second condition. The third condition is that um, they must understand what has been told to them. Uh, well, let's do two and three, three and four together. So the third one is they must un understand what has been told to them. And the fourth is all relevant information must be disclosed. So automatically not, <laughs> not happening in Squid Game, right? So must be understand what has been told to them. So uh, in Squid Game, they are told that you will be eliminated from the game. And they don't understand what eliminated means in the context of the rules. 
with number four, all the relevant information must be disclosed, it is never disclosed upon consenting that elimination means kill and that people will be killed for participating in the game. Um, and in fact, not only that eliminated means killed, because they say if you refuse to play a game, you'll be eliminated. They don't even include in any of the rules that if you lose a game, right, if you fully participate in the game and lose, that you'll be killed. So the participants, one, don't have all the information needed at time of consent, um, are given information without definitions or context, and three, are given the assurance of a reward that has so much power over the ability to change their lives that it would be almost impossible for them to walk away from it. So all of those conditions make it impossible to consent. Um, and in treatment or research, those are issues as well of, you know, is it is it possible for someone to consent to whatever they are engaging in? Um, and so you know, I know it's kind of like a silly argument to be like, can they even consent to actually play the squid game or not? Um, because it's a show and like the show wouldn't happen if they talked about consent, right? <laughs> There's not a team of lawyers working for the like scary capitalists, um, you know, to get them out of this. But I think it is interesting to, to kind of take that away as like something to, to learn about or ponder about is that, um, you know, being being put into a situation where your life, your livelihood, your life, your survival could be drastically changed by participating in something risky um, is not a good situation and is not a situation in which you have as much control as you may think you do because there are so many forces at work to keep you in this position even if it causes you distress. Um, and I think people experience this a lot at work, right? Like a, I, a lot of people are in jobs that are very dangerous uh, or are very difficult on their bodies or their, their minds or their, you know, emotional states. Um, but the, the fact is, is that if you, especially in this country, if you don't have a job, you don't have health care, you don't have guaranteed income, uh, which means you don't have guaranteed access to things like food and shelter, and so your entire livelihood is based on the fact that you are employed. And so, I mean, if we expand this argument out, can we consent to employment? <laughs> no, <laughs> because employment carries with it so many benefits uh, that are absolutely vital for our, our livelihoods. And there are some people who, who have, who have em places of employment that don't even provide most of those benefits, right? That maybe don't pay you enough to pay your rent or don't provide health care um, or don't, you know, don't provide like safety considerations. And even then the, the meager amount of money that they're given is such a powerful force in their life that they cannot walk away from their job. Um, and so I, and I think this is coming up for me because there's been a lot of talk very recently about like the labor shortage and people not wanting to go back to work. Um, and the reality is, is that I don't think it's that the people don't want to work. Like people, do, there are people that want to work, right? <laughs> like people like to be busy. They like to produce. They like to participate in the world and the economy and the society. Um, but a lot of people, I think, during the pandemic, realized that they were they were at these jobs where so much was held over their heads, just like the large piggy bank full of money was held over the Squid Game participants' heads, um, and that it 
that's not a situation in which you have any control or any ability to consent to. Um, And I know this may be a little (laughs) out there for some of my listeners, but I do want you to think about it. Like, if if you feel this pull to like blame people for not going back to work for for labor shortages or supply chain shortages, of wanting to blame others, of trying to imagine what it would be like to live in a situation where you had no control over your life circumstances and that one thing, like one job or pretty much one job, (laughs) um, had the power to, like, make or break your survival, um, that, that's a really horrible way to live, and, and, and it's really, really damaging to our well-being, and we can see in Squid Game how living under that condition can drive people to compete, uh, to tear each other apart, and may not necessarily be the best way to kind of organize a group of people, aka society. Um, so, that's why I wanted to bring up this consent issue because I think it really does have a lot of um, like implications for the way that we relate to other people. Um, and so the second article that I found is by um, two authors, Babu J and Varghese, and it's um, about this idea of state domination in, in the, the, the game Squid Game. Um, and so this is a a literature journal, actually. And like I said, not a whole lot of uh, scholarly papers that I could find on this because it, it is so new. But they make the case um, that really what's being demonstrated in Squid Game through the masked people running the games is um, sort of like an allegory or representation of the state and the way that the state surveils people. Um, and they also talk about the rules, the the three rules that people sign, and they highlight, these authors highlight that the rules are very ambiguous, right, which I did talk about in regards to consent, right, the, like, eliminated is not given context or definition, um, overall the rules are just really vague. And the reason that the rules are so ambiguous, or that why rules and laws in society in general are ambiguous is because it gives the rule makers the ability to bend the rules or interpret them differently to you know to their whims and also to protect them from like outside scrutiny or public scrutiny so if we think about the rules or laws in a state or a society um, that they may be vague or the language they're used may be obfuscating on almost intentionally so that they can be applied um, in ways that maybe they weren't originally intended to be applied to protect the interests of the state. Um, And if you've ever watched like a true crime show or court TV or anything where um, you're watching like lawyers do their thing, you, you may agree with this because, you know, you can see footage of, of lawyers in court spending like two to three hours arguing over like one definition of a word in a law and you would think that oh we've written this law down you know it's set in stone it should be permanent it should always mean the same thing but that's not true right that there are um, a thousand different arguments to be made to interpret certain laws particularly very ambiguous laws and um given how many resources you have, (laughs) uh, may impact how you, um, 
interpret or are able to to make your case about how to interpret the law um and so this not only the the masked nature of the pink jumpsuit guys and the capitalists uh, or the the game runners um but also the very nature of the laws that they set forward are meant to kind of diffuse responsibility and meant to and like hide um where the blame should really be and what the true meaning of the rules are and allows for, you know, the the participants in the game to be treated in very horrible ways because these rules are so ambiguous. And there's no protections for them built into the rules, right? Like, absolutely zero. There's, like, no guarantee that they get food, right? It's just kind of assumed that they will and then comes times where they are not given enough food. Um, another point that they make is that the uh, the rule about... The game being terminated upon majority vote is um, is is a type of tyranny that is built into democracy, and, and this one is a little a little more political. But basically, when majority rule always wins, there can be no place for expression or valuing of individual emotions and feelings. Right. So, like, if the majority had voted to stay at the game, all of the individual people who wanted to go home or didn't want to die or wanted to value more life, um, they they do not get to be respected, they do not get to be heard, they don't have any weight because the majority has voted to stay. Whereas vice versa, the, the, in the game, the majority votes to leave, and so those that want to stay and, and take the risk their their feelings don't get to, um, you know, be be weighted as well. Um, and I thought that was so interesting, because um, taken in the context of of the argument about consent, right? Of that, like this this reward is hung over you. That when the if the majority is swayed by these like dire economic situations, is it really a decision made by the majority, or is it more a decision made by the reward, the the incentive, the con, you know, the consequence, um, and and is it truly a democracy when people are making decisions based on their own economic insecurity, and and fear of returning to a situation that that they won't be able to survive, and I think we see that again. I'm in America, so this <laughs> that's what I'm observing, but you know, I think we saw that in a lot of our recent elections where people are voting for the choice that they think will bring them them money, them individually, money or economic stability or whatever, um, without giving any thought to how other people may experience or feel or have thoughts about um, the decision that they've made. And that, you know, there's a lot of other complicating factors because of this whole, we have the electoral college and it's not really a simple majority and blah, blah, blah. But this idea that like if enough people are leaning in the same way because of the like burden placed on them by the economic situation they live in then we all have to make that decision because the enough people have 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 been swayed by their situation um and and this article does continue to make the case that like the people who run the show or that run the game represent capitalism like it's pretty clear they represent capitalism um 
and that like the the connection between capitalism and the state is is not lost in that um, the game makers or game garters are able to take life um, in a way that the state is able to take life. Um, but that's a death penalty conversation that I don't think I need to get into today. today. Um, but I wanted to read this. This is the final quote that I wanted to read from this article. And it says, The real state outside is not interested in the players who got enrolled in this death trap. The players come from vulnerable social backgrounds and are not considered as productive agents for the state's growth. They are more or less social misfits the state is trying to get rid of. Despite of all the surveillance, the state doesn't seem to be aware of the missing of a significant number of its citizens. With the exception of the police officer Huang Jung-ho, who sneaks into the island in search of his missing brother, the state is hardly aware of the missing of these poor people. And so I think that's just a good place to kind of end this, of like, you know, if we kind of pull back in, in the world of Squid Game, pull back, the fact that 456, let's just say about 500 people a year for the last 30 years have gone missing. Um, and there's no uproar. There's no concern. We don't see any evidence in the show of there being like news stories about it or this being um, on the presence of the mind of people or that like other poor people are aware that this could happen to them. It happens completely under the radar and that, in fact, when characters do try to go to the police, um, particularly after they go home the first time, um, after they vote to end the game, they are not believed, they are laughed at, and agents of the state, the state itself, does not seem to care that a large portion of a very destitute and very poor people are going missing um, and, in fact, are dead. And that's... Um, that's that's very sad, um, and and I think not always very far from. It is an observation of of reality that when people go missing, um, particularly vulnerable people go missing or die, not always a lot of attention is paid, um, and in fact we are still in the midst of a pandemic where hundreds of thousands of people have died, a very vulnerable, many of them very very vulnerable to illness or um, to other medical conditions, um, of not having enough resources to have access to the best treatment, uh, or living in areas that are resource strapped, so are not able to even get to the care if they could afford it. Um, and, you know, every single one of those people that have died is a whole life and, you know, is connected, has family and, and people that are impacted by their death. But when we get to be, it to be such a big number, to be in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, I think us as people, but also as a society, as a, as a organized into a government, it's hard to maintain that level of care that you would have for someone that you know dying. And it can be, I think, hard to hold in your mind um, that that many people have died and that that many very vulnerable people are gone, um, no longer with us. Um, almost simply for the, f many simply for the fact that they, they didn't have access to the resources that could have saved their lives. Um, and so as always, you know, life imitates art. And I think one of the things that I took away from watching Squid Game was that, um, I, if you can continue to feel horror and continue to feel a sense of injustice or a sense of wrong or even just a sense of sadness when life is lost, um, then I think you can continue to stay in touch with 
so the part of us that makes us very human. Um, and it, it, there are characters in the show that are very difficult to care for or to care about or to invest in because they lose that part of themselves. Um, so I would say that watching Skid, Squid Game is really an exercise in empathy of can you take on the perspective of people who do very bad things in very desperate situations? Or can you even have empathy for people and how they got to the point where they would join the Squid Game? Um, and it's really hard. Um, it is really hard. And, you know, as somebody in the mental health field, that is kind of something I do every day. <laughs> is, you know, holding empathy for people who maybe I don't always agree with their decisions or agree with with what they believe, but I have empathy for them and I try to understand the situation that they're in. Um, and so if you want practice in that, watch Squid Game. <laughs> um, and, and I know this was not the brightest episode and it is a very dark show, but it is very well done. Um, the storytelling is, is, is really, really well done. Um, visually very, very beautiful. Um, and honestly, I found the con, the, um, concept to be quite interesting. It's not necessarily new because we've had lots of like battle royale kind of Hunger Games-esque shows, uh, or, or movies. Um, but overall I, I really enjoyed it and, and, and think it is worth the watch. Um, and so to wrap up this very <laughs> sad episode, I do want to end on a moment of hope and give a little shout out um, to a listener who I know was listening in utero um, and now is able to listen with us in the world. So I just want to say congratulations to this listener um, on their their baby being born and, and being in the world. Um, and that is something that is very uplifting that we're going to end this episode on of like life, life still finds a way and still goes on and people have such love in their hearts for each other um, and for their families. Um, and so I'm going to leave us there. And all I have to say is thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.